Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. This is Tuesday, October 4th, and you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Rainbow Soul channel of Blake Radio Network. And today's topic is, if child protective really protected children, then what would, what would that look like? Uh, I'd like to suggest that it's possible that as a parent, simply submitting your child to medical care may in and of itself be endangerment. But before we jump ahead of ourselves, let's take a look at Child Protective and let's see <clears throat> what Child Protective uh, does or what they say they do. And of course, this is .gov, so I'm going to take their word for it. Now, obviously, of course, <laughs> we have to say a disclaimer, right? Anything I tell you in this radio show is definitely my personal interpretation. I didn't ask anyone's permission. It's not anyone else's view but my own. And it may not be appropriate for you. And should you decide to implement whatever it is I say, then the responsibility is totally yours. I accept no responsibility at all. All right. This is Department of Family and Protective Services. We're going to check out Texas. Texas is a nice state, so let's check out Texas. So the mission of the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, and this, by the way, I'm sure is not much different for other, from other states, is to protect children from abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Okay. Now, by the methods they use, they want to involve, involve clients, not clear who clients are, I guess that would be the children, families, and communities. Okay, but the key here is abuse, neglect, and exploitation. They're going to protect the kids from abuse, neglect, and exploitation. And, of course, they have uh, in a, vision, a vision, and they have values, and they want to protect the unprotected. Uh, we're going to say that's children. And that's going to be, they're going to strive for excellence, and they're going to be ethical and accountable. It's really about the size of it. 
They value their staff, but they protect the unprotected. So they don't value the unprotected. They just value their staff. All right, that's cool. I mean, that's, that's their values, and we're going we're gonna to go with that. So that's what Child Protective does. They protect from abuse, neglect, and exploitation. And, uh, of course, there are, uh, you know, case, uh, case workers, of course, and if you ever had a visit from Child Protective, uh, which which I have because I was a homeschooler, as a homeschooler, if you get behind your paperwork, Child Protective uh, pays a visit. So we have this thing called felony child endangerment. I think it's really important to understand what felony child endangerment is. And then it kind of gives you an idea of maybe what level of conduct would rise uh, to that definition. Okay. Um, child endangerment occurs when a person engages in conduct that places a child in imminent danger of death, bodily injury, or physical or mental impairment. Now, bodily injury, uh, you know, I think that uh, stabbing would constitute bodily injury. So let's just say uh, that would be one uh, case if someone were stabbed where maybe that would be felony child endangerment. Physical or mental impairment. Um, I guess physically would be maybe striking a child. Mental impairment. Uh, we're going to get into that in a minute. But mental impairment is pretty vague, so we have to get a little more uh, specific on that. We'll get some more definition. So this can be through an act or omission. In other words, something someone does or something someone does not do. Okay. And so, so this would be a felony. So that's kind of what it is. But they, they give you a little more details in case you have difficulty sorting this out, which, you know, somebody might. So the first aggravating factor is intent. So it must be intent in order for it to be a felony. Uh, so endangerment says that people can make mistakes. So if the conduct by a defendant was merely negligent or reckless, we only face a misdemeanor level of punishment. So if the conduct was willful or intentional, then it could be felony endangerment. This is important. It has to be willful or uh, intentional. And sometimes uh, you have to deduce whether something is willful or intentional. Uh, but we can we'll definitely uh, have no problem assessing that. So the second aggravating factor is the degree of risk. So the higher the risk, the higher the charge. Um, California and Ohio, for example, will increase the charge when the risk is likely to produce bodily harm or death. So if the, the action is likely to produce great bodily harm or death, okay, then this would be felony endangerment. All right. So... Uh, some states also increase a child endangerment charge to felony level when a child endures mental suffering. So uh, we have a situation here then of endangerment and a child endures mental suffering. Okay. This is, uh, this is, this is important. Kids got to suffer here. And so risk of physical injury is not required. Some risks are presumed by statute. For example, if a defendant consumes controlled substances while in the presence of a child 
or drives with a child while intoxicated, some states will presume that the child was in some immediate danger or serious injury or death. Okay, so in other words, if, if, if a circumstance is created by an adult in which one can presume the child was in imminent danger of serious injury or death. Okay, so understanding the level of proof required for these elements is critical to develop the effective defense theory. And so these are, these are uh, this is free legal advice. <laughs> uh, uh, to, to try to explain to you that if you've been accused of felony endangerment, can I help you get out of it? So we're going to use their information to kind of help us understand. Most states will make some exceptions for reasonable discipline. What is reasonable will turn on all facts surrounding the risk. Okay, now they're talking about discipline, and we can think of discipline as um, trying to get the kid to do the right thing, and we can think of medical discipline as forcing a child maybe to submit to medical therapy. So this is reasonable discipline defense tends to be more difficult to utilize when a child is placed in a higher degree of risk. Okay, so get this. If the risk of a child increases as a result of the discipline, then the physical discipline is not reasonable. So this is important. So if then a child is disciplined, now they say a child walks to one side of the room and says, no, no, Johnny, I don't want you over there. I want you over here. And let's say standing where he was in the room, he's in no danger. But you pick him up and let's say you swat him in order to, by way of taking him to the other side of the room where you think he should sit. Okay, the swat, even though it may not have been, uh, you know, in your mind, serious, placed him in a higher level of risk than he was just standing there. So therefore, that would be, of course, an indefensible thing. All right, so we're just trying to understand this. When I say it's right or wrong, I'm just trying to understand this so that we can apply these criteria uh, to certain activities that occur in the life of a child. Okay. For example, if a defendant can show his conduct was merely negligent and reckless, he could obtain a reduction in charges from a felony child endangerment to a misdemeanor endangerment. Okay, so just, just negligent or reckless. So a defendant can mitigate the risk element by presenting testimony or an expert witness to show the risk would not have resulted in great bodily injury or death. Evidence that will support this theory includes steps taken by the defendant to protect the child through the use of safety devices and established parenting rules that the child may not have followed. All right. Defendants charged with felony endangerment face a higher range of punishment than a regular child endangerment allegation. The punishment in most states is from 2 to 20 years. This, we can say, is substantial. Well, two years, I guess anyone, you know, looks two years. But 20, uh, now we're talking. Before accepting a probated sentence, the defendant should understand exactly what's involved in the felony child endangerment probation. Some states impose minimum periods of jail time as a condition of probation. And this comes as a surprise to defendants that accepted a, a plea bargain to avoid jail time. Second requirement most child endangerment probations is the completion of an extensive parenting class. Now, this presumes the felony child endangerer is 
a parent. Might not be. Failure to complete the course can result in a revocation of a defendant's probation, possibly affect parental rights if the victim involved was his child. It can also face additional criminal charges. Some states codify felony endangerment in different ways. In Ohio, intoxication while driving is part of the felony child endangerment statute. Texas, however, creates a separate felony offense for driving while intoxicated when it's a child as a passenger. Instead of facing one felony charge, you have two felony charges. So we can see uh, a defendant charged or convicted of child endangerment can have the rights of his children restricted or terminated, depending on the severity of the endangerment. Okay, so you can see this is really biased towards parents, but it's not always parents who commit uh, felony child endangerment. Okay. So child abuse uh, has many definitions, but we're going to focus on uh, an action or failure to act that results in the death, serious physical harm, or emotional harm of the child. And we're going to focus on emotional harm because I think that's actually pretty severe. Um, then sexual abuse or exploitation of a child or which places a child in imminent risk of serious harm. So child abuse laws raise difficult legal and political issues pitting the right of children to be free from harm, on the one hand, against the right of families to privacy and the rights of parents to raise and discipline their children without government interference, on the other. But again, with respect to sexual abuse, we have to understand what, what sexual abuse is. Under common law, children were treated as a property owned by the parents. And particularly fathers had great latitude over the treatment and discipline of children. The outlook was carried to the American colonies and incorporated into early laws in the United States. And so uh, in 1870s, an eight-year-old New York orphan named Mary Ellen complained of being whipped and beaten nearly every day by her foster family. And her case captured the attention of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. <laughs> okay. So the important thing to understand here is physical uh, abuse, let's say daily, is considered uh, an issue. And sexual abuse is part of child abuse. So if a child is sexually abused, then, uh, you know, that's considered a problem that's considered child abuse, even though it's sexual. So abuse can be sexual, emotional, or, or serious physical. It's not clear what serious physical is because they don't tell us what serious physical is. Okay. Now, uh, we also have to understand that endangerment that results in mental illness or serious physical illness or injury is a felony. This is... Uh, this is critical. And a child who's subjected to child endangerment is called an abused child or a neglected child. So something that can reasonably be expected to end in serious physical illness or injury would fulfill this criteria. All right, so taking a look at this then, let's take a look at some things that happen to children um, really routinely and see uh, 
what Child Protective might do. Let me just see if we have any other uh, information. Ah, abuse. Um, To treat a person with cruelty or violence, especially regularly or repeatedly. This is important, regular and retreat, uh, repeatedly. So So if it's regular and it's repeated, then we can definitely call this uh, abuse. Example, riders who abuse their horses should be prosecuted. All right, gotcha. But, so let's take a look at children and the children's life, and what would Child Protective do? What would Child Protective do if they were trying to protect these kids from uh, emotional abuse, physical abuse, and um, violence? So, We've got a, we've got a, uh, a fix on what Child Protective does. They protect children from physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. Okay. And we know that uh, something is, you know, physical, uh, sexual abuse or endangerment because we've, we've got uh, a definition here. So let's start at the very beginning. I think we should start at conception. Okay. So just for your information, uh, having nothing better to do with my time, I decided I would take a look back in the annals of uh, birth and the percent of uh, pregnancies that end up in a live birth. All right. So if we go back to like 1940, actually even further, let's go back to 1930s. 25%, up to 25% of all births ended in death. Okay, so a person gets pregnant, and 25% of those pregnancies, you know, you're not getting, you're not getting a live kid. And however, many of those pregnancies went to term, and the babies would die. Um, in the first year of life. So now, fast forward, this is uh, 2016, and we have a situation where 25% of all pregnancies, this is not, we're not talking about abortion, 25% of all pregnancies where the lady does not elect an abortion, that baby does not, that that, uh, embryo does not survive to one year of age. So in other words, pregnancy survival rates, despite all of our technology, have not increased. Furthermore, um, even though infant mortality may be more or less six per thousand, there's another 250 children per thousand uh, that die between conception and what would be one year of age. So let's take a look at uh, prenatal care and um, prenatal checkups, and we're going to see what happens. And we're going to see if we can um, detect any cases where maybe uh, Child Protective should uh, step in here and protect this uh, baby. All right, so prenatal tests. So they uh, take blood samples. All right, well, let's just slide on that. Even though we know that 
Um, the mother's blood is very, very valuable, and taking numerous blood samples from her during pregnancy can uh, be harmful to the baby. But we're going to let that slide because the connection there is, is not, uh, you know, that uh, direct. Now, just for your information, 0.8% of Americans die every year. That's just average, just, you know, hanging out here on planet Earth. Uh, chances of death. So we can say then, if the chances of death rise to 0.8% or more, then this kid is endangered. Okay. All right. So we, we, we got that figured out. So let's take a look here. Um, first thing um, we can subject this child to is chorionic villus sampling. What the heck is that? Um, there's something called a villus, and the villus and the chorion are the cluster of cells, a very small cluster, uh, about 32 cells or so, maybe more, but it's a very small cluster, and these cells are attached to the uterus. And somewhere around 10 to 13 weeks, a tube can be stuck up into this cluster of cells to take a sample to see if the child might have a birth defect. Okay, so this is a test to determine if the child has a birth defect. So it's done between 10 and 13 weeks. The question, what is going to happen if the test shows there's a birth defect? Answer, the lady's go, a, a, an abortion will be strongly recommended. And so then, this represents serious endangerment for the child who has the defect. It's difficult to imagine endangerment any worse than, well, being killed. Okay, so, but wait, what if it's a healthy baby? What if it's a healthy baby? What happens with chorionic villus sampling? Well, more or less 1% of babies will die, even though they're healthy, they're going to die. And so this chorionic villus sampling actually rises to the level of felony endangerment. This one little test, chorionic villus sampling, rises to the level of felony endangerment, uh, as we've just discussed it. And if a doctor does this test repeatedly, okay, so why does it rise to felony endangerment? It's felony endangerment because this test creates a measurable increased risk of death. That's serious harm. For this child. Okay, so got felony endangerment on that count. Now, if a doctor does chorionic villus sampling again and again and again and again, and he's re he realizes that this is a risk, then one has to impute or deduce that there's an element of intent here. So we've got the high level of danger for a healthy child, increasing the risk of death from this. And this is a child that reasonably we could expect would have continued the pregnancy and been born. And if the child has a genetic defect, uh, the endangerment is, is astronomical. Now, there's another thing they don't tell you about, which is false positives. So what is the risk to a child who is actually healthy but receives an erroneous result 
that he is defective. 80% of those individuals are actually aborted, even though their mother would not have aborted them if it were not for the re- this uh, false positive report. So chorionic villus sampling, if Child Protective was protecting children, <laughs> it would be unlawful. All right, so what else do we have? As a screening test, first trimester, um, to detect a higher risk of chromosome disorders and other problems such as heart defects, can also reveal multiple births based on your test results, and your doctor may suggest other tests to diagnose a disorder. Okay, so first of all, uh, multiple births in the first trimester, you don't need a screening test to detect that because the stomach will grow much larger than it should. So easy, you've got multiple births. Second thing that happens with multiple births is you can actually listen with a stethoscope. And uh, towards the end of the first trimester, you're going to hear more than one heartbeat or a heartbeat in more than one place. So uh, first trimester blood test, what does it do though? It detects chromosome disorders. And what has happened when you get a blood test showing a chromosome disorder? Well, then an ultrasound exam uh, can be done. And obviously an ultrasound exam will definitely detect if you have multiple births. And it might, this is the first trimester, defect, uh, detect deformities. But what happens when these deformities are detected? Again, the mother is advised strongly to have an abortion. And uh, research shows 80% of these mothers do have an abortion. And so what we have going on here then is a test whose sole purpose, whose main purpose, actually honestly sole, sole use is to indicate that a child is to be harmed, aborted, or killed. So this is definitely uh, a screening test, probably alpha fetoprotein, that Child Protective would object to. Glucose challenge screening. Now, this is a very stressful test, and it involves a a pregnant lady actually not eating for several hours and drinking syrup mixtures instead and literally fasting. That alone is endangerment of a pregnancy. It is such an incredible stress on the pregnancy. Um, Again, Child Protective might take a look at this, but they might say, well, you know, most women do survive this. Then there's the group B strep infection. Um, This test is done 36 to 37 weeks to look for bacteria that can cause pneumonia or serious infection in the newborn. However, most women um, who have this particular uh, infection it ends up not being an issue with the baby. And then we have antibiotics being given that actually can become an issue with the baby. So group B strep, we'll give that a plus minus. Uh, Then there's maternal serum screen. Uh, This is alpha fetoprotein. I guess the other one's a uh, a different glucose, a different screening test. And this is more in the second trimester, 15 to 20 week. And this blood is drawn to measure levels of certain substances in the mother's blood. And based on this results, 
the doctor may suggest more tests. Now we're getting into the level of blood tests and vials, and we're really taking a substantial amount of blood, uh, you know, from this lady. So we've, we've drawn blood from her. This is the, the third or fourth time during the pregnancy. So we're, we're getting up to a pretty good amount of blood here. Again, what's the purpose of the screening test? Is to develop, to de- determine or detect Down syndrome, uh, neural tube defects like spina bifida, and abort these babies. And this test, alpha beta protein, has a very, very high false positive, uh, very high false positive rate. And which means these babies are subjected to additional stress of amniocentesis. And so amniocentesis itself is uh, uh, another issue. So amniocentesis carries with it a risk of anywhere from 0.5 to 1% risk of death. Now, again, with a child, with a uh, a person, average risk of death for a whole year is 0.8%. So we've done the chorionic villus sampling. The poor kid may have survived that. Maybe he didn't. And that was a 1% risk of death. Then we have another percent risk of death here with the um, amniocentesis. Now, there are some people who claim that the amniocentesis risk is only 0.5%. However, again, we've got a rolling cumulative risk here. Now, the 25% risk of fetal loss, the medical industrial complex has not owned up to that. They haven't explained where all those losses come from. However, when we take a look at the um, amniocentesis, we find that for every, um, the positive predictive value for an amniocentesis result is somewhere around uh, 2%. Which is, which is atrocious. At, at best, it's 10%. What does that mean? It means if amniocentesis tells you that your child is genetically defective, there's a 90% chance you have a healthy child. And so literally, those nine kids are aborted. And so just the test itself, amniocentesis, can be construed as child endangerment because 90% of the kids it fingers for disposal killing are actually healthy kids um, that would have gone all the way to full term. And so if they were going to protect a child, this is a test, amniocentesis, that they would absolutely just um, stop. Now then there's a non-stress test. This test is performed up to 28 weeks to monitor your baby's health. It can show signs of fetal distress, such as your baby not getting enough oxygen, or such as you not getting enough water because <laughs> you're being tested and you're not drinking enough. Again, non-stress test, lots of false positives here. And what does that mean, these false positives? It means babies get doses of steroids to make their lungs mature and um, C-sections get done, creating premature babies. And what's the number one cause of death in the first year of life? Prematurity. And what's the number one cause of prematurity in the first year of life? A scheduled C-section. And here we see is the source of that. And so again, the non-stress test would be something the child protective would look into and say, hey, wait, doing this test creates a felony level child endangerment. And let's just say the child 
lives. This is we're talking 28 weeks here. So this kid's going to need a nail intensive care unit, no question. Um, this kid is going to be tortured. He's going to be physically harmed. He's going to be stabbed multiple times, and um, he's going to develop some pretty big emotional hangups. So the results of the non-stress test predictably lead to felony-level child endangerment. And this is uh, something that if Child Protective were protecting children, according to their definition, not mine, then this is something they would probably uh, prohibit, actually prohibit. Then we have the ultrasound exam. Uh, And this can be performed at any point during the pregnancy. Uh, They're not routine. Now, this is important for you pregnant ladies out there. Ultrasound exams are not routine. In other words, it is not necessary to ever have an ultrasound exam during your pregnancy. Okay. Now, ultrasound exams, multiple ultrasound exams, have been shown to cause growth retardation. And certainly, creating a child, taking a child from normal to retarded (laughs) is a pretty big uh, child piece of child endangerment. And again, this is just a trend thing. So the more ultrasounds a person has, um, the more developmental issues are going to arise. And so an ultrasound exam is something that um, should be done, actually should not be done routinely. This is exactly what they say. It's not a routine exam. You definitely should not be getting your ultrasound pictures of your baby. If that's really important to you, just borrow someone else's pictures and pretend that they're yours. It'll be much safer and better for your baby. Um, so ultrasound uses sound waves to create a picture of your baby. And again, the baby is all about cells moving to different locations and developing. So you have cells that start in the midline, and they've got to move out to the edge to create hands, for example. And so when you do ultrasounds, you have a vibration that disrupts this movement, delays it, slows it, and can create a baby that's not as good as he might have been had he been left alone. I mean, I almost have to say the baby has a, or should have, a right to privacy in the womb. And urine tests. This seems harmless because, I mean, the lady was going to pee anyway. But one thing that happens in pregnancy is, especially with urinary tract infections, is the doctors will take a urine sample, start to lay down antibiotics, which can be harmful to the baby, while they're waiting for the test to come back. And this is a very big problem. Um, Another problem with urine tests is over-treatment. Again, over-diagnosis of sexually transmitted diseases when there is none. And then this exposes the baby to antibiotics, uh, which can then create for this baby depending on whose research you take a look at, um, type 1 diabetes, uh, irritable bowel, all kinds of problems can happen with a successive overtreatment during the prenatal um, phase. And it says, you will collect a small sample of clean midstream urine in a sterile plastic cup. Okay, if you've taken care of, and you probably haven't, taken care of pregnant ladies, by the time they get past mid-trimester, like the second half of the second trimester onward, it is impossible to get a clean urine specimen because the body is naturally secreting so much stuff down there 
that it's difficult to sort out uh, what's going on and difficult to get a clean urine sample that has not been contaminated by the lady's own um, natural body fluids. And so much of prenatal care would simply be, one, prohibited by Child Protective, if they were protecting children, or two, um, Child Protective would arrest the individuals providing the care. But it does not stop there. Let's go on and um, take a look at what happens once a child gets born. So it's like, hey, hey, I'm here. <laughs> so if Child Protective were concerned about these children, what would they do? Uh, well, first thing that happens when the kid gets out is uh, a lot of times the umbilical cord is, is cut. And so when the umbilical cord is cut quickly or prematurely, uh, let's say before three minutes, the child then becomes anemic and can develop breathing problems. And we see this with C-sections with TTN, transient tachypnea, the newborn. And um, this results in the kid going to the intensive care unit and all kinds of invasive things happening. So the first thing that happens is the kid um, gets deprived of blood. And this can have consequences. Generally has consequences in terms of respiratory problems and um, anemia. Okay, so what does that lead to? It can lead to increased um, child death. The number of increased deaths is very small. It's less than eight per thousand. So we're, we can gloss over that. But then what happens to the baby? The baby gets stabbed. He gets stabbed uh, in the heel to get a blood sample which we used to, they told us doctors, that these blood samples were to detect or test for phenylketonuria and thyroid disorders and on and on and on. We now know that was not the case at all, that these samples were actually being used to test, uh, to create a genetic blood bank the government is keeping on every single U.S. citizen that is born. Okay, so the kid is stabbed. And again, according to Child Protective, stabbing is... Prima facie, that is felonious child endangerment, period, because it creates fear, it creates terror, and emotional distress. Okay, so this kid is stabbed in the heel. What happens next? Next, he's stabbed in the thigh. Well, what's he stabbed with? He's stabbed with vitamin K. Well, what kind of vitamin K? It's synthetic vitamin K. Well, so what? Turns out synthetic vitamin K causes neonatal jaundice. Right. So that's why all these babies are staying yellow and need to stay in the hospital an extra four days. But, but doctor, what else does it cause? Well, it causes mental retardation in about 1 in 10,000 babies. Yeah. A baby who would have been of normal intelligence becomes stupid, like certifiably stupid, IQ less than 75. So this is definitely, I think one could say, serious harm. And it rises to that level of endangerment, felonious. And so it seems to me then, if not for every child that's stabbed, because we now have got two stabs, right? A stab for, uh, to create jaundice and a four-day hospital stay, more revenue for the hospital when the kid could have been maybe home uh, overnight, right? 
So this, we could say, even rises to the level of exploitation. So it's child exploitation with a live baby. He's being stabbed, given a drug that knowingly will cause him to stay in a hospital for four days instead of one day, thus raising the revenue for the hospital. And this happens again and again and again and again and again and again with every baby that's born. And if parents try to refuse the shot, of course, they have to sign a form saying, I refuse the vitamin K shot, even though I know my kid could bleed to death, even though, of course, it's synthetic K is getting not natural K. So, um, that would be felonious endangerment, child exploitation, just by giving the uh, aquamycetin or vitamin K shot. The stab in the foot to just, again, you're, you're torturing this kid, creating fear, pain, and distress, just so the government can create um, a 100% record of the genetic profile of every American citizen. And then you're depriving a kid of his own blood right there in the operating room. Again, we can call this exploitation because there is um, a market in the transport and sale of placentas and um, amniotic cords. So we have here then, this baby is not even one day old and has been the subject of felonious child endangerment, child exploitation, trafficking in human flesh even, if you want to take the placenta and umbilical cord to be human flesh. And uh, we haven't even started the vaccinations yet. So now what happens? Okay, so now it's 24 hours. The kids made it out of the delivery room. Uh, maybe he's even into the nursery or who knows, maybe mom had the sense to demand rooming in so the baby would stay with her. With my first baby, I didn't know any better. So I said, oh, leave her in the, leave her in the nursery. <laughs> well, it was not a good idea, but I didn't know any better. Uh, but back then, they were not doing vaccines in the hospital before you left. So then um, this child has now survived 24 hours of life and it's been a, a pretty... Um, pretty dismal, dismal journey so far. And so depending on your hospital you're in, the regulations, maybe you're going to get a hepatitis B shot for the baby. We'll get a hepatitis B shot before leaving the hospital. Okay, so they have many studies showing that hepatitis B shot increases the death rate in baby boys. Don't know why, can't say, but it happens. And again, so this gives us what? This is a felonious child endangerment charge for sure. So child protective would, if they were protecting children, uh, they'd be in the hospital on the case man arresting whoever gave that uh, vitamin B shot. For good measure, they might even arrest whoever wrote the order for it. And even better, they might even arrest the all the members of the hospital committee that okayed the standing birth orders uh, for this shot. So now the kid is uh, one day old. Let's just say mom's lucky and she gets out of the hospital in 24 hours. All right. She's home. And so uh, you have this uh, baby's home, but then, oops, he has to go for his well baby visit. And what happens at the well baby visit? First thing I have to take a look at is what's the whole reason for the well baby visit? Uh, 
Um, the basic reason, now the reason the parents are told is so the baby can be screened to make sure he's healthy. That's what the parents are told. What do they tell us doctors? These wall baby visits are a pretense to get this lady in here to make sure this kid gets vaccinated. That's what the wall baby visits are for. And if you take a look at the wall baby visit schedule, you will notice that you get shots at almost every visit. So, uh, like I said, that's what they tell us doctors is that these wall baby visits are the only way we can get these ladies in to get these shots. So if we just tell these ladies to come in for your shots, for your baby shots at a certain level or a certain schedule, they're not going to do it. But if we say it's a well baby visit and we're going to check the kids for this and check the kids for that, then mom will show up. Now, just on the face of it, you have to say this would be a, well, deception, right? So many women take their babies in for a well baby visit thinking the doctor is going to be able to tell them that their baby is healthy. When, of course, that's ludicrous. If your baby is pissing, pooping, and eating, that's pretty much the story. That's all, that's all she wrote. Uh, there's not much else we expect from babies. Even babies who are, um, let's say, a slackered on the job uh, doesn't mean that, that they're unhealthy. The other problem is the, we have something called growth charts that we doctors use. And then we also have developmental charts. The growth charts measure the kid's head circumference, how long is he, and how much does he weigh. Now, these charts are not accurate for different groups because some groups, uh, like maybe Asians, might be smaller, or certain Hispanics might be smaller or shorter, and so on. And so then still other groups might be taller. Maybe people of strong German stock, you know, tall, husky. And so babies vary so widely that it's difficult to validate these growth charts. Now, what we do say as doctors is, well, once your kid starts on one one curve and they have a whole bunch of curves that are basically parallel and don't cross, then your child should stay on that curve. And again, even that's not really true because uh, a mother who's very good at breastfeeding (laughs) can breastfeed her kid up to some pretty high curves and then the kid's going to fall off the curve onto its regular or his natural growth growth curve, uh, you know, months later, maybe at the age of a year or a year and a half. So um, your doctor's using an invalid method, the growth chart. Then you have the developmental chart. Um, The developmental chart, again, uh, is inaccurate. And the reason the developmental chart is inaccurate because some kids can develop slowly and then all of a sudden catch up. And so it's not a valid measure. Now, even worse, when you look at these growth charts, what if the kid's not growing well? All the doctor's going to offer you is a return to the hospital with a bunch of expensive tests to investigate something called failure to thrive. And usually there's no diagnosis. So in other words, Doctors are looking for something for which they have no therapy. So that's the um, growth chart issue. Well, what about the um, developmental delay issue? What can a doctor do about that? Answer, nothing. Maybe you could tell your kid's stupid, but you knew that because he wasn't doing things as fast as the other kids. So these routine health visits, there's no evidence that they are actually 
of any uh, benefit at all. So what does that mean? So if you have somebody who's taking your child, taking off all of his clothes, fondling him and touching him in personal private ways in personal private places, um, say nothing of shoving a thermometer up his butt, we can just call that sodomy, under false pretenses, then this would definitely constitute um, sexual exploitation of his child. In other words, sexual touching under false pretenses for financial profit. And so your child's well-child visit actually constitutes an act of sexual exploitation for your child. But it doesn't stop there. If you go to California, California has a school entry health exam requirement. Yes. And so the child has to complete a health assessment 18 months before or 90 days after enrolling in first grade. I know all about this because I used to be a school doctor, yes. So I was one did school exams for the first graders and fourth graders. This is a regulation thing. And apparently California has the same regulation that New York has. Now, just to let you know how these exams, if you want to call them that, are, are conducted, there is no history. We don't ask the kid any questions like, how's it going? Uh, what do you have to eat? You know, Are you having any aches or pains? Nothing. We don't ask the kid a thing. And the kids are put in a room like cattle. Uh, whether it's a girl or a guy, doesn't matter. The girls are separate from the guys, but the girls are all wearing nothing but panties. And the guys are in another room wearing nothing but panties. And we have to literally touch just about every square inch of this kid's body. Um, and the kids are screaming. They don't want to be touched. They think that there's something wrong with this. <laughs> of course, they're correct. Um, so this is not anything that is at all healthy for the child or even a benefit. So I was a school doctor for at least a year, maybe two years, and I did hundreds of exams. And out of the hundreds of exams, I did not find one thing that would merit therapy had I seen it in the office. So there's one kid who had a little boil on his toe, but you know, mom could have just let him soak in the tub a little longer when she gave him a bath that night. So the chances of a doctor finding anything abnormal on the physical exam of a kid healthy enough to get up, get dressed, and get to the school is just about zero. So what is this exam for? Well, it's the exam is a PSYOP, if you will, to convince this six-year-old human being that's okay for his physical body to be violated, to be inspected, for his privacy to be violated, and for him to be really um, sexually abused, especially in the case of boys. Because in the exam with boys, we doctors are required to pull their pants down and physically squeeze each of their testicles. One reason I quit 
I was like, this makes no sense. There's no reason for me to do this. This kid was checked for two testicles at birth. Why do I have to check him again at six years old? Unless mom says, hey, he had an accident and lost a testicle in between. But testicles, if they're there at birth, they're not going to go away at six years of age. And so with this sexual touching under the false pretense of being of health benefit to the child, when actually there is no health benefit, this is nothing more than rape. That's what rape is. Rape is sexual touching without the other person's permission. So we don't truly have the parent's permission because it's under false pretenses. We certainly don't have the child's permission. And so if child protected, really protected children, uh, they would drop all of the physical uh, exam requirements for schools of all ages. They would drop all the physical exam requirements because there's no evidence that it's of any benefit. Why? First of all, going to school is so undemanding. All the kid does is sit in a seat. So you're not asking the kid uh, you know, to do somersaults or anything. But then finally we have something called vaccination. Vaccination, without even examining whether vaccines are effective or even examining whether or not they're safe, let's just dispense with that discussion altogether because it's just well, too controversial and we don't want to be controversial. But if we take a look at vaccine, it's nothing more than a child being stabbed. And this kid is being stabbed repeatedly. And every time this kid gets a stab, what does he get? He gets swelling and he gets fever. This is considered a substantial level of harm, just by the way. Then some kids even get seizures. This is just an immediate response. And in order to vaccinate the kid, what do you have to do? We often have to strap the kid down literally in a straight jacket of Velcro in order to stab them. And this, if judged on the same scale as corporal punishment, um, the reasonable discipline, strapping the kid down in a straitjacket, um, is not reasonable when the discipline itself, which is stabbing, uh, you know, creates harm. And so the problem is this endangerment results in also mental distress. This is why kids have stranger anxiety at 18 months, because they've been stabbed so much by a stranger. And so this would be a felony. So vaccination would be a felony child endangerment charge, even more so because of the repetitive nature of it. So what would Child Protective do if they're really protecting children? They would shut down the whole uh, pediatric industry is what they would do. But they're not going to do that for whatever reason. We don't need to go into that. So what does that mean? What does... What should a parent do? A parent should um, regard every doctor visit as attempted murder, as felonious child endangerment, and as assault. And the parent, to the extent the parent feels that they as a parent have an obligation to protect their child, they should keep their child out of the doctor's office. That is what each parent should do. And I leave that to your creativity, how you're going to do that, because basically what we're talking about here is 
what would require individual creativity, how would you handle it if you knew that the next doctor's appointment would be a case of attempted murder or felonious child endangerment? Would you take your child? And if not, to what extent would you go to avoid that encounter? And I would say you definitely should. So uh, we've got tons of questions in the chat room, so I guess I should go take a look at them. But I'd like to say that VitalityCapsules.com is working. It was not working for a couple of days last week, but it's up and working. So those of you who'd like to purchase Vitality Capsules, you can go to VitalityCapsules.com and purchase Vitality Capsules. Uh, so that's one question. Dr. Daniels, can you list a link where you purchase Shilajit on eBay? Yes, I can. I will go and take a look. Uh, I'll just take a look over here. Shilajit. And here we are. All right, so you can buy Shilajit on eBay. Uh, however... It takes six weeks to, to to show up, so I I recommend that people buy a one month supply on Amazon and then order at the same time a six month to a year supply on eBay. The reason for this is the eBay price is literally one fiftieth of the Amazon price. So just sliding down here to find the um, Shilajit. All right, so when I find a Shilajit, it will be, oh, here it is, in the chat room. And where is the chat room? Chat room is at healingwithdrdaniels.chatango.com. There you go. Okay, next question. What are my thoughts about fulvic acid? Fulvic acid is, is the same as Shilajit. However, um, the fulvic acid mined in Utah does not have the same spectrum or as broad a spectrum of trace minerals as Shilajit, and that's why I no longer recommend it, and I recommend Shilajit instead. Okay. Okay. <laughs> then, if after the doctor fondles the poor kid's testicles and the child nervously gets aroused, the child is even more traumatized from an early age. Is that the case? Absolutely. Uh, I did not realize at the time that I was doing these exams just how traumatic they were for these kids. Well, I mean, I thought they were pretty traumatic, but in me personally, when I realized that I wasn't detecting any problems, I just felt that this was fraudulent, and there was no reason to um, put the child through this trauma. It's really not for the child's benefit, and that it was just simply abuse. That's all it is. Okay, Dr. Dance, can a pregnant woman breastfeeding mother do the turpentine therapy? Uh, 
I personally would not. Of course, you can do whatever you want. Many women have taken turpentine with uh, with great benefit. All right, that is it. I'm just I'm getting the sound in my ear that my time is up. So, oh, next week uh, I will be broadcasting from Thailand of all places, and so the Sunday show will not take place because I'll be in a plane. But tune in for Tuesday, and as always, think happens. <laughs>